good evening, everybody. Um, my name is Simon Jackman. I'm Professor of Political Science and the CEO of the United States Study Centre out at the University of Sydney. And I see many familiar faces who know exactly who I am. So welcome back to another United States Study Centre event. Thank you for coming. Um, uh, before we go any further, I'd like to acknowledge uh, that uh, this part of the University of Sydney, like uh, the main part of the University of Sydney, uh, stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Um, tonight, um, intriguing topic we're going we're gonna to take a look at, and we're, we're pleased to, to have a special visitor uh, from, from North America. Uh, not the United States, as well as I'll as I'll say in just a moment, but but um, it's Peter Lowen um, is 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 our is our guest tonight. Peter's um, Canadian um, and is a professor of political science at the University of Toronto. Um, and he's currently um, hanging out at my old stomping ground, Stanford. Uh, he's on a 12-month. Um, the rest of North America thinks of those fellowships as bliss. Those of us we call you know we called it home, but uh, you're welcome. Um, but at, at Stanford's uh, Center for Advanced uh, Study in the Behavioral Sciences, um, a, a, a research retreat essentially, an institute that sits up on the hill behind Stanford, where uh, a few fortunate souls get to spend a year in uh, in solitude, thinking great thoughts and doing great research. That Peter's going to share some of uh, of that with us tonight. Um, Peter's topic is uh, the fear of automation and its connection to the rise of populism and protectionism uh, in, 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 um, in recent democratic politics. Now, of course, for a United States Study Center, this is firmly and squarely in, in our frame of reference. Um, there are many, many stories told about public opinion in the United States, particularly around the 2016 election. What is the source of support for a candidate like Donald Trump? Um, 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 it goes by many names, economic anxiety being being one of them. Um, other people think it's a lot more simple than that, good old-fashioned racial prejudice, for instance. But what's, what's been kind of conspicuously lacking from a lot of uh, this speculation um, about the sources of support for a, for a, for a populist candidate, or certainly an unorthodox candidate like, like a Trump, and, and, and for that matter, for other populist candidates around the democratic world, what's been lacking is, is an unpacking of the, of the disparate sources, the drivers um, of, 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 of what is what is making people turn to the unconventional candidates. Um, um, one one story is that it is, it is a fear of, of technology and being displaced in the workplace, and that gels with a lot of stories that we tell about Trump. White men, older men, lower status um, um, in all sorts of realms. Um, culturally, to be sure, but most predominantly in the workplace, in the labour market. Um, to what extent is that actually true? Um, and, and, and Peter actually has some data um, to, to, to share with us tonight that's, that's, as I gather, hot off the press. Uh, and, and not only that, Peter is hot off the plane, I understand as well, right? I got here today. You got in this morning. Yeah, I know. Uh, so, so thank you for making the big effort. Peter's an, ex an exceptionally well-travelled um, uh, person, so he, not his first time to Australia, and so he's familiar with uh, just powering through the jet lag. Um, so what's going to happen? Peter um, has, has pre uh, prepared a presentation. Um, don't say that. Peter has prepared a presentation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, that will go for about uh, 20 minutes. And then what I'd like to do is to have a little bit of back and forth um, myself and, and the director of our innovation entrepreneurship program sort of heading up the part of the United States Study Center that, that, that 
where we focus on on, on these sorts of issues, uh, and that's Claire McFarland. We'll be we'll be joining um, uh, uh, Peter and myself up here for a little bit of Q and A before we open it up uh, to everybody uh, to to um, react to to what Peter's got to share with us tonight. Peter, welcome back to Sydney. Uh, this is all set up and ready to go for you. Have at it, and I'll, I will sit somewhere where I can watch the presentation. But it, but it, but it's all you. Thank Thanks, you. Well, it's very nice to be here, and I appreciate the invitation very much. And um, what I want to do this evening is uh, talk a little bit about the relationship, if there is one, between automation, people's fear of automation, and populism. And this is a nice little opening slide. The, 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 the person on the bottom, of course, is, is Donald Trump and all of his, all his glory. And uh, at the top is a cabless, uh, driverless uh, transport, uh, which if you haven't seen, you'll see more of on the roads over the next, uh, over the next 10 years. So let's just think about two big trends that are, that are going on in the world right now to kind of frame this talk. One trend is that economies are being revolutionized by artificial intelligence and by automation. And I'll talk a little bit about what that looks like in a second. But I'll just say that there are three things, I think, which are well worth noting about automation and artificial intelligence and its effect on the economy. One is that the speed at which this is changing the economy is not well known which is to say that whatever forecast someone gives you today about how quickly automation is going to occur in some industry or not occur in another industry is probably wrong, uh, could be wildly wrong. The averages are probably right, but where that'll happen, I think, is very hard to anticipate. The, the relationship is that the, uh, the, the implication of that is that the, the um, areas or kind of the sectoral places where automation is going to take hold is hard to predict as well, and I'll show you kind of why that is in a second when you think about this in a multi-dimensional way. But it's easy to say, probably with a lot of accuracy, that automation is going to revolutionize some industries. It's hard to say which ones it's going to revolutionize, what kind of tasks it's going to uh, revolutionize. And the third is the governments are not even close to cracking the nut about how to deal with automation, how to respond to it. So if you follow city politics, really in any, in any kind of big metropolis around the world, you'll see that policymakers tie themselves in knots trying to figure out how to regulate Uber. And that's a pretty simple problem. Right? We've been regulating taxis forever. A technology comes along, it brings in more drivers, but it's not that hard to kind of figure out what's going on here. People are driving cars and taking people to, to more places, and there's more of those people in the market now, and you can think about what the implications of it are. When you start wondering what happens when, for example, uh, law firms rely on the automated reading of texts to make decisions about whether a contract is good or not, right? or if you think about what happens when hospitals rely on algorithms to determine who should be operated on or not, and doctors are completely deferential to algorithms, then you realize that there are more complicated problems. So governments aren't really anywhere close to knowing what to do with a lot of forms of automation. There's another trend that's going on, which is that there's some mix of populism and nativism, and it's returning to our politics. And every time you think it's kind of reached its, uh, its crest, uh, one of two things happens. Either within some country it gets worse, so you open up the New York Times every day and something else has been said by the President of the United States, or you think there's some country which surely must be immune to the populist virus and it gets caught by it. So it gets deeper in the places where it's uh, present and it's spreading at the, same, at the same time. I'll talk a little bit more about these populists in a second, but there's three things I, I'll, I'll say about them right now. Is that um, they learn from each other. Uh, they look around the world and see what other people are doing. The second is that they're very good at exploiting uncertainty and, uh, uh, and, f and, f and people's fretfulness over the future. 
And the third is that they're actually not very good at policy, which is which matters a lot for their for their long term success. Now the question isn't you know are these are these trends happening? They certainly are. The really relevant question to me is how are they related to one another? So what I want to do is talk a little bit about automation very quickly, talk about populism very quickly, and then show you what the relationship is between people who fear automation and what their views on politics are and what it is they want from political leaders. So here quickly are some, some, uh, some tables that one of my friends at McKinsey sent to me. So this is a uh, McKinsey slides always have a lot of information on them and you're just meant to go through them quickly and appear very, very uh, big picture as you're doing it. The story on this slide is that automation and artificial intelligence are a lot of different things. Okay, it's not only putting a robot into a factory. It's using machines to read data and read large amounts of text. It's about making predictions. It's about um, developing natural language tools that allow us to um, read, read and process massive amounts of, of written and verbal uh, data all at once. It's about increasing the intelligence of workflows. There's all sorts of things that are going on. It's not just robots making widgets better than, than humans. If you want to know why it's hard to predict where automation is going, this graph will give you a sense of it. So you can see here along the bottom is how much people are being paid. So as you go farther left, you see people are getting paid more. And as you go up the graph, it tells you how, how much of a person's job can be automated. So look at the landscape, you know, landscaping and groundskeeping workers way down there in the bottom. Not paid very much, right? But very hard to automate lands, landscaping and groundskeeping. A file clerk, not paid much, very easy to automate, right? Turns out for a CEO, though, that a fair amount of what they do every day can be automated, a quarter of it. So who do you automate in this case? Right? It's not clear where your value is. So it's hard to know with any technology exactly who it's going to impact and how it's going to impact people. That means that it's very hard for people to know whether they're going to be negatively affected by automation and, uh, and by artificial intelligence. And this is just showing you that it's not just simple jobs. People who work in auditing, in people who work in taxation, people who work in business development, uh, revenue management, have massive parts of their jobs which are open to automation. So if automation is going to revolutionize the economy, it's not going to be for people in a single sector or in a single income class. It's going to be across the board. It's a big change. I'll just say, I'll say something about populists very quickly. Uh, the fellow up in the upper left-hand corner is Viktor Orban. If you know him, he's the Prime Minister of Hungary. And there's, there's three things that are worth noting about Orban as, a, as an example of a populist. One is that he's a great political entrepreneur. He started out as a liberal, failed at that, returned as a populist. He found something that worked. It's the first thing that's worth noting. Second thing that's worth noting is that he is driven by, uh, and his appeal is driven by nativism and by immigration. The biggest challenge in Hungary is not the inward migration of people from other countries. It's the outward migration of native Hungarians to other countries. The idea that populism is, in its response to migration, is all about people coming into countries misses that it's a very nuanced thing, actually. It's got various causes that differ from country to country. All of them are, are underwritten, though, by a sense of uncertainty, by a sense of the core people of the country being sold out by other people somewhere. But it's not just or even principally about pressures of in-migration in every country where there's, where there's populists. The third thing I'll note about him is that he's not very good at policy, actually. He's actually not a very good uh, 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 public policy entrepreneur, implementer of policy. He doesn't have a lot of solutions to actually solve Hungary's problems. He spends a lot of time picking fights with things like the Central European University. This is a story about a lot of populists, right? They're right about the, right about the problems and wrong about the solutions. 
<clears throat> but he's one, of a, he's one of a type around the world, and they're on the ascendance. And this nice graph from The Economist just shows, over time, the varying fortunes, but the secularly increasing fortunes of populace across the Western world. So here's the question. What's the relationship between these three things, between people who hold populist and nativist views, and I'll tell you what those are in particular in a second, between people who fear automation and their political preferences, and are they all related to one another? Okay. And I'm going to show you in a second that they're not necessarily related to one another in the ways that we think they might be. So here are the questions. Do populists and nativists fear automation more than people who aren't populists and nativists? Now thinking about citizens, not about politicians. What are the policy preferences of populists and nativists? And what are the policy preferences of those who fear automation? And what are the political preferences of them? So moving aside from policy onto politics, what are their preferences? And what I'm going to show you is this, is that it is the case that we know this, that people of populist and nativist views have certain political preferences. They prefer parties of the right for the most part of a certain type. And I'm going to show you that there's a relationship between people who, who are populist and who have nativist preferences and a fear of automation. If you fear automation more, you're more likely to hold populist and nativist preferences. But there's not yet a clear link, at least in the data we have in Australia and in uh, the United States, between people who fear automation and their political preferences. The link's yet to be made. It's going to be made by political entrepreneurs who are going to come along and say, you fear automation, here is the policy response to that. You fear automation, you ought to fear it, and here is what a government ought to do in response. And I'm going to show you that, in fact, the responses that are available to governments in some ways cross the political spectrum. So it remains an open question as to which policy entrepreneurs can really grab this by the nettle and say that they're the ones who have a solution for automation. Before that, I want to show you what it actually looks like in terms of people's fears of automation and how it relates to their nativism and their populism. So the data for this are coming from the U.S. and Canada. We just, we just ran two studies, 500 people per country. It's conducted online. It's representative of the population if you wait it out. won't talk about this too much, but it's only to say that the data reflect the way the population feels at its core. I'm going to measure a couple of things. One is populism. And populism here doesn't describe, as I talk about it, nativist views. Populism is something different. It's an anti-politics, an anti-system sentiment. It can be captured by those on the left, think Jeremy Corbyn, or those on the right, think Donald Trump. It takes different forms in different places, right? And it's distinct from nativism. I'll show you how we measure that in a second. We use questions like this. Do people agree or disagree with statements like, the American economy is rigged to advantage rich and powerful? To fix the United States, we need a strong leader willing to break the rules. The U.S. needs a strong leader to take the country back from the rich and powerful. You get a sense when you look at those questions what we're talking about when we talk about populism. And you should get a sense that a person, a political entrepreneur, can come from the left or the right and offer themselves as an answer to those types of sentiments. Nativism is something different. It describes a preference for um, existing members of a society against outsiders. You can combine it with populism to generate right-wing populism. It's almost definitionally what right-wing populism is. But nativism is itself something that's distinct from populism. It runs together in political rhetoric, but they're two separate ideas. This is how we would measure whether people have nativist views. You ask them if they agree or disagree with questions like this. Immigrants take jobs away from real Americans. The U.S. would be stronger if we stopped immigration. When jobs are scarce, employers should prioritize hiring people of this country over immigrants. You get a sense now that it's, we're not talking about the same thing between populism and nativism, but that they go together 
in political rhetoric. Okay, let's talk about the data. If we ask people, how many of your friends and family's jobs do you think will be replaced by a computer or a machine within the next five years? This is what the distribution looks like. So most people are actually not, the majority is not convinced that automation is going to replace most jobs, and they're probably right about that over a five-year period, right? 35% say no jobs will be lost to automation, 44% say a few. Now, I, I wouldn't make a stock market bet on what citizens tell you in response to an online survey about where automation is going, but this gives you a sense of what their sentiments are. You've only got 12 plus, plus 9, so 21%, 22%, who think many or most jobs will be taken away. Now, if you look at it over, five, over 10 years on the right, you see that people shift. People understand that more jobs are going to be gone to automation as time goes on. And if you ask them over 25 years, you see now the majority of people are saying that many or most jobs will be lost. That's not super surprising, right? But if you break it down by those people who don't hold populist views on the left and those who do host, uh, hold populist views on the right, then you start to see the big differences. Right? Among those who hold populist views, 52% think many or most jobs uh, of the people they know will be lost to automation within 10 years. For non-populist, it's only 34%. It's the same thing if you break people up by whether they're nativist or non-nativist. Those on the left who don't hold nativist sentiments uh, about immigration, 35% of them think that most jobs will be lost to automation over 10 years, many or most. Among nativists, it's a majority, 53%. This is in the US, by the way. We can talk about the Australian data in a little while. If you ask people how afraid you are of robots replacing people in the workforce, it's kind of a crude way of getting at automation, but it, but it's, it gets at it the way people think about it. You've got 25%, 15 are afraid, 10% are very afraid. Okay. A majority, in fact, three quarters, tell you that, tell us that they're not uh, not afraid or only slightly afraid. I don't know what slightly afraid means, but they're they're slightly afraid. But if you look at populists and compare them to non-populists, you start to see the differences, right? 19 plus 15, 34% of populists are afraid or very afraid of robots, replacing people in the workforce. It's 20% of people who are non-populists. Nativists, it's the same story. Those people who fear immigration, who think that the country ought to close its borders, so those from outside the country are also those who are afraid that, uh, that robots are going to take the jobs of people that they know. Now, what are they, so, that's, so that's, those are the fears in some sense, right? I mean, this is where they're at in terms of their sentiments. What do they want government to do? So we asked folks whether they agreed or disagreed with the following statement. The government should penalize companies for firing workers and replacing them with computers or machines. Let's get away from the policy particulars of how a government would actually punish corporations for doing this, but ask people if they agree. Among those who are non-populists, 9% strongly agree. 26% agree, so a third. Among those who are populists, a majority agree or slightly agree. Think about that for a second, right? A corporation wants to come along, and rather than having uh, a person take something from a shelf and put it into, uh, 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 put it on a belt, as it's being manufactured, a pretty simple task which a robot can do easily, a majority of people think government should punish a corporation for doing that. If we ask them, do you think consumers should boycott? Uh, corporations that uh, that automate, the same numbers of, the same numbers appear. 
If we ask them, do you think the corporation should abstain from automating altogether, similar numbers appear. It's the same if you look at nativists, by the way. The majority of them, nearly two-thirds, agree or strongly agree that the government should punish corporations who automate. If you're a political entrepreneur, think about what your response is to that, right? How it is that you uh, start to speak to people who have those fears and those beliefs. So as I said, similar breakdowns occur if we ask consumers if, uh, ask people if consumers should boycott companies and if comp corporations should voluntarily avoid automation. The final thing I'll say is that there's no relationship between a fear of automation and people's trade preferences. There's no linear relationship between it. Partially this is because the views on trade have been upended in the United States, as Donald Trump's railed against trade for a long time, and it kind of has upset the way people think about trade, but it's not yet linked into protectionism. Finally, we asked people questions in the U.S. that were like this. We sort of said, we're going to give you two statements, and I want you to, want you to, we want you to tell us which one you agree with more. What we're trying to get at here is whether people support government taking any kind of action against automation. So they would receive a pairing of statements that look like the ones at the bottom, Automation and AI are going to take away a large number of jobs, so the federal government should begin decreasing immigration of skilled workers from other countries. Or do you think that um, there's nothing the national government can do and workers should just prepare themselves? So that pairing either uh, had the, the policy solution of reducing skilled immigration or reducing unskilled immigration or investing in science and technology or training, uh, retraining workers. So what we're trying to get at here is whether which policy actions people think are reasonable, reasonable responses. Here's the interesting thing. If you look at that, that first column, which is a bit hard to see, if you can see it from the back, you should sign up as a sniper uh, with, the, with the government. But the story is that among people who are not nativists and not populists, most of them don't actually want government to take action, uh, uh, policy action to deal with automation. Among those who are nativists or or, or, or populists, more always want government to take action, kind of regardless of what the action is, whether it's reducing immigration or it's investing in STEM or it's investing in, um, uh, in retraining of adults. If you look at those who fear automation versus those who don't, which is the last two columns of the table, then it becomes a really stark difference, right? Those who fear automation are, have a big appetite for government to do something. And it's not just reducing immigration. They're supportive of governments that'll, that'll invest in science and technology, education and mathematics. They're, they're supportive of governments that will invest in retraining. Finally, here's what vote choice looks like in the United States. The story here is that a fear of automation is not yet linked into vote choice. So the Republican split among nativists and populists is 58 versus 45 for those who are non-nativists and populists. The Republican Party is a 13-point boost among nativists and populists versus those who aren't. But if you look at those who fear automation versus those who don't fear automation, it's just six points, 56 versus 50. Okay. There's clearly a link between people's fear of automation, whether they're populists and nativists. And we know there's a link between whether they're populists and nativists and what kind of parties they support. But there's not yet a link between those who fear automation and their political preferences. And you might ask yourself why that's the case. And I think the answer is something like the following. If I can just, sorry, I got lost here. The story, basically, is that there's not political entrepreneurs out there yet who are making that link and clearly talking to people. But the story is also that it's a, it's a fear that cuts across the political spectrum in, in, in large part. And you can imagine parties at the center and the center left having responses to this fear of automation um, that, uh, uh, that would be entirely acceptable to voters as much as those on the right. 
I'll just say something quickly now, uh, and then we'll have a we'll have a conversation, and that's that uh, we could talk about it in detail. But I'm going to just push through, literally just push through, ten slides right now with Australian data, and you're going to see whether the story is different than Australia. There's populists and non-populists in their in their belief that jobs will be lost to automation over ten years. A much greater belief among populists in Australia. A much greater belief among nativists in Australia that jobs will be lost to automation over 10 years. Here's fear of automation in Australia, 30% afraid or very afraid. But look at it among populists and non-populists. Non-populists, 20% are afraid or very afraid. Populists, 43%. Nativists, 22% of, of non-nativists in Australia are afraid or very afraid of automation. It's 45% among nativists. And it's the same story here as well that nativists and populists want government to do something about automation and the fear of it, whether it's reducing immigration or it's uh, investing in education, investing in retraining. And in the two-party vote, which is, I understand, an obsession in this country, uh, labor runs ahead among those who are populists and nativists by eight points, and it runs ahead by those who fear automation by 11 points. That makes for very interesting politics. Uh, that's all I'll say for right now. Thanks very much. Hi, Peter. Thank you for that. Um, one question that I want to start with is um, to what extent what you're seeing, those connections between uh, nativism and or even the, the, the prevalence of a fear of order, let's while it, wheel it back to that, fear of automation, is that connected in any way to someone's real material situation, uh, educational attainment, um, their labour market history, their age, their gender, sort of dialing this back to the question I started with, to what extent, just before we get to sort of running that upstream or yeah. downstream as you did, um, we'll get to that, but just sort of the bare facts of the matter, if you've, if you've had a chance with the data to sort of do a dive on it like that, is it the fact that Fear of automation is a, confined to a certain segment of the labour market, as perhaps one of those graphs suggested it, it might be, or maybe, or maybe not, um, yeah. given that you know, lots of jobs could be automated, uh, and indeed it might be the expensive ones that could be automated, it might be exactly where you go first, and that, that would suggest that it's actually people with college degrees might want to be yeah. afraid of this, and, and, not, and not people with uh, less educational attainment. I'm just wondering if you had a chance to have a crack at that. Yeah, so, so the rational response is that, that, that if you look at it across uh, economic class in some sense, right, or manual labor versus, versus, versus people who work in, uh, I don't know what it is we do, we push symbols or something around, right, uh, that that the fear should be basically evenly distributed, yeah. right? So, so just imagine, it, it, it's essentially impossible to imagine a robot doing plumbing. Mm. It's very complicated, right? Houses are never square, it's actually an art to it, it's, it's, it's hard to do, right? It's not hard to imagine a robot assembling all parts of a car, right? Now, when we do surveys, we think the plumbers and, mm. and auto factory workers are the same people. Right, they work with their hands. They typically, have a college education at the highest level, uh, at, at the most. You know, so they must be the same. So rationally, those fears should be distributed differently across those different folks. Mm -hmm. If you if you look at the data, there's a relationship to age. Right. right, older folks are more worried about most things, but they're worried about they're worried about this. People who are in more manual occupations are more worried than those who aren't. That's a problem. 
right? If you're working right now as a, if you're a currency trader right now and you still work at a bank, you should be worried. Yeah, right, right, right. Because I mean, Goldman Sachs had something like two or three hundred people on its currency desk in New York ten years ago, and today it's got like forty programmers and three people running the desk. Right. So, but the actual empirics and the data are that you get some distribution in terms of whether people are working in manual labor or not. They're a little more worried. Older folks are a little bit more worried. But it's but even even the fear of it's not as structured as most things are right. in the data. That's it's, that's one thing I wanted to say. And, and indeed, is there? I don't know if they had an opportunity yet. But one thing to perhaps milk out of the data at some point would be great to see if there's any. Is this one of those things where the U.S. is five to ten years further down the runway than, than Australia? Right. Perhaps right. would be it would be. From our interest here as a United States study center in Australia, would would be would be would we'd love to know about that. Um, Meet Claire. I know you guys met before, but Claire directs our, um, tra uh, our innovation and entrepreneurship uh, program, um, and, and, and we've done a few uh, takes on this problem from different mm. perspectives. We've looked at innovation in Australia, um, but, but sort of your bottom-up take is something I don't think we've done per se yet, no. but, but I'd like to let Claire mm. pop a question mm. into the conversation. The thing that strikes me about this data compared to data that we've looked at is that this is how people feel mm. about these things, whereas what we have looked, what I have looked at in particular is where things like where the jobs growth is in Australia and where jobs are declining mm. and, um, and looking at where there are um, job shortages or worker shortages. Um, and that kind of in Australia tells a really interesting story because the jobs in Australia where there is growth are caring professions, mm -hmm. are um, convenience professions, so it's things like, like and, and the US data and the Australian data is pretty similar in relation to where the jobs growth is because it's, it's things like nursing, um, surgical assistants, um, uh, and you know then things like waiters and chefs as well as technical jobs mm -hmm. and so there's that's a really I was really interested to see this data because it's it's a completely different perspective it's about how people feel as opposed to where the jobs growth right. is um, and so the thing that really um, that really that really strikes me about this um, is to what extent and you mentioned about the fact that there, there's not a lot of policy development happening in the US, but one of the things that we've been looking at is the, um, at a state level, there, is a, there seems to be a, a much greater um, focus at a state level on workforce development policies in the US than there is here in, than we're seeing here in Australia. And I just wondered whether you think that's a response to and it's also, it's not partisan, it's both Republican and Democratic governors are, you know, focusing on workforce development. I'm wondering if, you're th if you think that that is a response to, a policy response to this, or whether you think that they haven't quite, whether you think that something else is driving that. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, well, I think that there's, there's, there's a lot of reasons why you've got, why you've got a lot of money going to workforce training in, in the U.S., right? But, I mean, a major reason is just massive long-term removal from the workforce, mm. right? That the share of adults in the U.S. who don't show up in the unemployment numbers because they've stopped looking for work yeah. Yeah. as a share of the population is, is staggering, right? Yeah. And it really, the, the low unemployment numbers in the U.S. papered over the fact that there is massive just exiting, uh, permanent exit from the workforce in, in whole parts of the whole parts of the country. Some of it is probably just just purely the laboratory of the states where they're, where they're racing to do these things, do these yeah. things better than others, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the, 
if you were a political entrepreneur today, if you were a politician really trying to make your mark, what you'd be doing in, in large part is thinking about the way automation is going to make some jobs actually better. Right? So I have a, I'm the grandson of a long-distance trucker, and you know, he, would, he would drive. Back in those days, you could drive forever. You know, and you could drive 18, 19, 20 hours across, across Canada. You see nothing for, for 19 hours, and then you arrive in Vancouver, and you've got to drive a transport through a city where there's people everywhere, and yeah. that's a hard job. Right? Keeping the thing straight on the Trans-Canada across the, the prairies right, is not difficult. Yeah. So if you're, a, if you're a policy entrepreneur, what you say is, we want to set up a regulatory framework where automated trucking occurs between cities. You're on a straight highway, the trucks can go all day. Right? But when it gets to a certain point at the city, that's when a, when a human driver takes it over because it's hard to drive a big truck through a city. Mm. And that driver who was away from his family or her family mm. for days at a time is now doing five runs in and out of the city yeah. all day and is going home to their own bed at night, driving the same amount of time, making the same amount of money, um, but having a better life. Yeah. Right? So there are, there are ways where governments can think about regulation, especially in industries where you've got, which are very large scale, in a way that takes advantage of automation, makes people's lives better, mm. makes it, you know, creates incentives for companies to automate or doesn't create disincentives, um, but, is, but is shrewd about it and is smart about it, right? Yeah. Um, that's much better than trying to figure it out once people have been dislocated from their, from their jobs, right? Mm. Yeah. And, and, and that, by the way, is just something that a party of the left can, can grab yeah. as easily as a party from the right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 Um, one more from me. Um, is it, let, let's try a very tight encapsulation of the findings as we go from fear of automation to um, nativism and populism to a, a vote choice. Mm -hmm. um, is it the case that? Um, beyond nativism and populism, adding in, predicting how someone's going to vote, if I give you an additional piece of information, what someone feels about automation, that does not contribute not anything. As, yeah, That's right. It. But your sense is that that will happen at some point. Give it some time. Yeah. Right. Right. It's got to. And, right. you, and you, can, you can imagine how parties of the right will do it, right? So look at, look at the way Trump deals with trade, right? I mean, he deals with it in, in there's multiple things going on at once, right? One is that he makes a big flurry about wanting to renegotiate NAFTA, and then nothing actually gets renegotiated. It's just the, it's basically the same agreement with right. slightly more American content in cars coming out of Mexico. Literally, that's the whole thing, right? right? And, and it can sell a bit more milk in Canada. Uh, bangs on about building a wall, but picks on a different company every month that's been offshoring jobs to Mexico and says, you're not going to offshore any more jobs. And Carrier says, okay, well, you know, we won't offshore any more jobs and we'll keep some jobs here in America. And everybody feels like they've won. Well, you know what the response is going to be with automation then, right? There's going to be some company in the U.S. that's going to decide to automate a ton of its workforce at once. It's going to create a big outcry and a populist candidate. And they can do it from the right or the left. is going to say, I'm going to stop that company from, from doing this, right? Not having a real comprehensive policy response, but it's going to try to try to come down hard on a company. Well, doesn't the company just say, well, we can have 20 jobs, people managing machines, or we can have zero jobs? How about that, yeah, How about yeah, that you deal? Know, yeah, you can try it. Yeah, yeah. But, well, but we've seen some of that already, right, with some of the targeting of particular companies about, about different things, like Amazon in particular, has yeah. been really targeted. And yet there's huge jobs growth happening in logistics, uh, similar to the way that you're talking about, but from a warehouse, um, warehouse yeah, perspective. Yeah. That that's one of the big, in the US in particular, it's one of the big jobs growth areas, is logistics yeah. and it's probably less about automated trucks and much more about what's happening within fulfillment warehouses um, yeah which is which is another really interesting um, angle on that um, yeah. yeah so um, if we were to um, just
just step right back from the politics. Now I took you there. Now I'm going to put you away just before be the last question from me. Um, that chart uh, that we'd sort of borrowed from McKinsey, I suppose. Mm. Um, what part of the labour market ought to be most worried right now? Australia's interesting, right? Um, this job, occasionally I get to hang out with, um, uh, we're very lucky, occasionally a law firm will host us for an mm. event and whatnot. Mm. And Australian law firms are a long way down the runway on, on automation, mm. particularly the ones that are big plugged in, big multinational concerns, yeah. Yeah. where this is, they've got the, the resources, they've got the bandwidth to invest in this technology and, and the savings across their global businesses are huge, da 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 da. So they've, they've done a lot of this. Um, that was sort of, I think, in, in in Australia where, wow, the demand for, for people with law degrees is all of a sudden, you know, that's, that's where it sort of reached right up into the, into, yeah. Yeah. you know, sort of middle class, upper middle class. Um, um, it, what else, other than the, you know, mac massive processing of documents in, in, in law firms, what else is sort of there at the moment that your research has sort of uncovered as, as sort of perhaps another sector that's about to turn out not to be future-proof. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I mean, accounting, finance, things that are related to the, to the, to the, to the management of money, basically, are, are wide open for, for automation. So on, the financial, so on the financial services side, I, I guess there's been a, there's, there's a lot of disruption in the, in the financial services sector in Australia right now because of the, the commission. But, but, but if you think about what investing was like before and what investing is like now, I mean, right. the ability to just go online and crack open a, a I need you know, ETFs here, crack open exchange-traded fund, mm. yeah. very, very low fees, yeah. and have no interaction with a human except for a little bit of an interview at the start of that process. And to completely cut them out of the process is just, it's incredible, right? So the, there's implications of that for financial planners. Mm. There's implications of that for you know, people who are selling insurance. And there's tons of implications for that for the people who are on the floors trading or behind desks in banks trying to move money around and trying to, they're, they're essentially being automated out. Mm. Right? Think about accounting and yeah. auditing and all all these things where it's, we're really talking about just massive amounts of data moving around mm. and the ability of computers to, to learn from those data much faster than we can yeah. is, uh, is remarkable. Yeah. Peter, one of the other things that struck me from something that you said just before, which was about the people in the, you know, the, the kind of exodus of the workforce in the US, because I noticed, I think it was in July for the first time, the, um, the number of open job openings in the US exceeded the number of unemployed. I think it was something like 6.7 million job openings and 6 million unemployed, which is you know, which is kind of astonishing, and um, some of the data that, that we've been looking at has is talking about the kind of the skills mismatch yeah, there yeah, yeah. in terms of the um, the the types of workers that are being sought compared to the types of workers that are available is is hugely different. Um, is, has the work that you have looked at, um, or this data that you've looked at, uncovered anything in relation to that and the kind of the fear of automation? As to, or the, I mean, I was interested in particular actually about the kind of the retraining and the um, focus on STEM in, mm -hmm. in relation to the data mm -hmm. that you've uncovered because, um, and I, I can't remember whether there was a big difference between the Australian focus on that and the and the US focus on that. There's not. There's. There's not a huge one. I mean, the 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 rise of LinkedIn is a is a is mm. a really interesting thing, and it, which reflects a larger trend in human resources, right? Which is that which is that people can identify skill mismatches much more than they yeah. could before. Yeah. Like the way LinkedIn's really working is you're going to put in the skills you want from a person yeah. for a role, and it's going to do an automated matching of yeah. those skills to people who are available in the labor force, right? Where before, you know, 20 years ago, the process of hiring a person was a much more human yeah. experience, yeah. where someone came in and you got a sense of whether you think they could do the role. 
right? And that was that's probably as yeah. good of a sense as, as kind of the crude matching that's going on now. Yeah. I mean, I think I. I I, th I think on the retraining side, where the future is over the next 10 or 15 or 20 years, is universities at some point are going to get serious, or they're going to they're going to really die in the sector around doing really focused kind of micro training of people, where you're going into a new role. There are some identified skills that you need. They can be learned in two or three days mm -hmm. through yeah. through focused intensive yeah. education, yeah. and universities are going to figure out how to provide that very quickly and credential it very quickly. And if they don't, someone else will. Yeah, it's already right? happening. It, it is. I mean, it happens. It happens in places like this through executive education, but it's yep. going to happen across a yeah. lot of Yeah, sectors. that's the primary delivery vehicle now, but you're right. But the micro class, uh, yes. I don't need a degree. Yeah. I don't even need a whole unit yeah. of study. I don't even need to be in the same room as a professor. Yeah, yeah but right. I, need, I need 12 By the hours. Way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. I need 12 hours on blah. Yeah. What's interesting about that is I actually have some LinkedIn data here, which, um, so, uh, because this is one of the things that, that I've been looking at. In the US, the three cities with the largest skills shortages overall are the San Francisco Bay Area, New York City and Los Angeles. And in September, the number one um, skill shortage that was identified in those three cities was oral communication. Huh. Um, but digital literacy and social media turned up across two of those, um, two of those locations. And research and graphic design turned, and data science were the, ones, the other ones that turned up across, across two of those. Leadership, interestingly, was the other one that turned up across all three mm. in terms of skills shortages. Mm. So it was, it's, it's really, like, they make, there's, there's a lot of this data that's available now that, that is really interesting. Um, but, it's, but it struck me as still being able to speak well is, is a challenge. Enormous. Last, last observation from me on that. Um, there's a lot of talk about STEM. Mm. I, I actually prefer STEAM. Mm. Uh, put the A for arts back in there huh. because you can be yeah. a tri you can be a triple threat. Yep. Uh, um, uh, uh, good liberal arts background, but some technical nous. Yep. And um, um, the world's your oyster, yeah. as, as yeah. those stats. Yeah, uh, that. Uh, yeah. You know something about the world, you can speak well, yeah. and, and a little bit of technical ability, yeah. punch your own ticket uh, these days. There's my tip to your kids. Uh, yeah. and, my and I would, I would agree to, to, to my kids. Yep. Um, um, lots more we could talk about up here. The U.S. unemployment stats are actually gangbusters. Labor market participation rates have stabilised, actually. It's very interesting. I, I'm, I'm really interested in who is getting back into the U.S. labor market uh, right now. Um, uh, and it's a really interesting thing about the, uh, the Trump boom at the moment uh, with unemployment at a 50-year low yeah. and it doesn't look like it's plateaued yet like oh, no. where are these so it's, it's people coming off the sidelines who've yeah. been out for a while yeah and it's and it's interesting as one part of the economy is taking off in the u.s some of your nativists and populists or fear of automation people are finding their way back into work it might not be on the assembly line as they might have been 15 years ago it might be wearing an apron or, or working at Home Depot yeah, yeah. or, you know, sort of casual retail sort of work. Yeah. Well, but, no, but it's a really remarkable thing that's happening in the American labour market right now. If, if you want to talk about the, on the data side of it, if you look at the data, one of the big predictors of whether you're a populist is whether you think the economy is going badly. Right? I mean, it's just they're in economic distress. Now, you run the data and you ask people for their, pro their perspectives yeah, right, right, right. about where the economy is going to go and whether it's growing. Right. Yeah. Who's got really positive views of the economy in the U.S. right now? Populists. Yeah. Because, right, because guys the president. in the White House and, and yeah. the economy is going gangbusters. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, I, I really did want to get people in, but I, I lied, didn't I? Um, <laughs> can, we, can we have um, questions? Um, and I already see a hand here. If you could just briefly introduce yourself. And um, 
And uh, a question, not too much of a speech. Thank you. Hi. Possible? I'm Amanda, and I work as an analyst um, in one of the. Sorry, Thank Amanda, you. and I work as an analyst in one of the finance companies. Um, I was actually wondering, in terms of the breakdown of the data, whether there was more of a trend in uh, gender, say, or age, and that sort of thing, in looking at who is more scared of automation and populism and nativism because I remember you, oh, recall that you said um, a lot of the older generation is scared of fear of um, automation but that to me seems a little paradoxical given that the younger generation is the one that's going to have to deal with it. Yeah, I mean there's, 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 no, there's no shortage of overconfidence among young people, right, about the, the, way, the, way, the way the world is going to... I used to be young. Well, I remember when you were young. Yeah, you do, when we yeah. were both young. Yeah. yeah. The, way the, the way the world's going to the way the world's going to fold. There's not big stark gender differences. Um, this gentleman down here. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Armin Hicks. Um, I wanted to, to ask a question. The f automation and robotics um, has been around for quite a while, actually. Yeah. We've been through a blue collar. Uh, jobs, a whole lot of jobs were lost in the 80s and the 90s to blue collars. Um, arguably, n populism and nativism didn't emerge in that period. Is it the fact that white collar jobs are under threat that is actually driving this? Is that what the data says? And is it and is the the change that actually white collar jobs are under threat? And is that critical in the political understanding of that? That's fascinating. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think I think it's a very I think it's a very I think it's a very good good observation. I, I would just say I would say two things building building on it. I mean, one is that you know the story of 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 populism is that it's a story of people who are able to exploit uncertainty and fear coming from multiple places and to give it a, give it a, a, a logic or a narrative, you know, and it doesn't have to be uh, rooted in the same things in same in the in. In the same places. I mean, unquestionably, in the U.S., populism is rooted in a sense of racial grievance that, 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 that particularly for 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 white folks and white men who are who are in who are in the middle age, this is the target market in some sense. They feel like their relative status has declined in the U.S. remarkably, and in, in large part, that's actually true, right? I mean, they were very hardly hard hit by the GFC in 2008. That's the group that's that's the only group in America that hasn't experienced an increase in life expectancy over the last over the last 20 years, most because of alcoholism and drug abuse and, and some other things. So, you know, that's the cause in the U.S. It's a different cause, and it's a different cause in, 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 in different places. But what we haven't seen yet is a massive, as you say, a massive dislocation of, of white-collar workers. There's a couple reasons for that, right? One is that automation, the automation wave hasn't hit as hard as it's going to hit yet. But the other is that it turns out that people who get dislocated from so-called white-collar jobs are actually pretty good at finding a new job yeah. and finding something else that they can do because their skills are actually kind of undefined and broad and, and, are, and, are, and are adaptable. It's hard for a person in a, in a, in a one-company town who's knocked out of a factory to then find work. There's just a lot more transaction costs for them, and it's a, it's a lot, it's a lot harder. Um, the, the thing I would say, though, just the, the 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 final thing building on your observation is that if you were a policymaker in the 1980s, I mean, if you were, if you were, if you were running the government of Australia in the 1980s, that was a kind of an easy job, actually, right? Like, how are you going to make the company country oh, better? I'm sure the people who were doing it would disagree. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But 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 Keating looks at it and Hawk looks and says, well, we got to deregulate. Malcolm Fraser and John Howard might have a have a different. Yeah, but 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 there was a lot of low-hanging fruit then. Right. I mean, you could you could build out the super. You could you could you could deregulate the financial industry. You could float the dollar. There's all stuff that was well, hard to do politically. That, that didn't happen till the mid 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hard stuff to do politically, but stuff you could do. Right. Now, if you're a policymaker, 
sector, what's the solution to automation? It's a big one, right? What's the solution to massive you know, uh, population dislocation and migration? These are big, what's climate change? I mean, these are big, big problems that are harder than the policy problems uh, that were there in the 80s, right? That, that's a, that, that, two good points there. The, the last one, we see that all over the place. Um, it's, a, it's an observation you often hear about um, free trade agreements now. Mm. We've done the easy stuff. Yeah. Free trade. You know, liberalisation, after a wave of liberalisation, yeah. you're cutting into bone, as yeah. it were. Yeah. Um, but just going back to the first point, um, the 91 the recession in the US was, was as, as you asked your question, I was reminded of that. Um, um, unlike the oil shocks and, and, and the big wave of deindustrialisation in the United States through the 80s, um, it was, relatively speaking, a short, sharp recession in the early 90s. The, the, the Gulf War won, the first Gulf War recession under Herbert Walker uh, uh, Bush that led to Bill Clinton's It's the Economy Stupid campaign. Why did that have such special resonance? Mm. Because where it landed, it was, it was, it was touching white-collar workers um, mm. who were... And it had political resonance because it was affecting people who were close to the cut point anyway. They, wouldn't, they didn't need much of a shove to consider voting for the other side. Um, and, and I think you've got to, when we think through the political implications of anything like this, sort of map, and that's what I like about this work, mapping it onto where is the economic shock landing or the technological mm -hmm. shock landing in terms of the political spectrum. If it's landing over here, it's going to take an awful lot to move to have, you know, to have people flip parties. But, but again, the 91 uh, came, and, and what Trump did, you know, these are people who were probably not rusted on Democrats and, and, and didn't, wouldn't need much of a shove to consider not voting for Hillary Clinton yeah. uh, and, and, and this being a, enough to get, them, to get them over to vote for, uh, uh, for, for another candidate. Um, but, but I just remember, 91, it felt like this was a recession that reached up and bit the middle class and, and in a way that it started, you started to see layoffs of teachers and office workers. This was no longer Detroit, because uh, that had happened. Mm. Right? This was sort of a reaching up into a different segment of the labour market. Um, sure. Yeah. Uh, let's get a microphone so we make sure it's captured for posterity. Okay. <laughs> Thank Thanks you. very much. Uh, when you look back over the last 200 years, what we've seen has been increasing uh, automation, people being put out of work, but at the same time new industries mm. coming up and those people put out of work getting jobs in the new industries. Uh, I, I can remember very well uh, one industry used to be putting shoes on horses, mm. the other industry was collecting the horse manure in the streets of London. Both of those have now gone. Are we, are we looking at a stage now with the automation that we're not seeing the new industries to absorb the new people? That, that's one observation. Another observation, just briefly, I'll make it brief, is about popularism and fear of automation. I personally have had experiences in the last week or so of an algorithm in banking, in a, a super fund, and in a health insurance fund, those algorithms in those three cases, meaning that I can't get what I want, I can't get an explanation of what's happened, mm. I just get told it's an algorithm. Yeah. And I used to be able to talk to people, but I can't anymore. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, I mean one of the look, so so let's take we could take these kind of in 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 reverse order. But one of the big pushes right now in AI is what they call explainable AI, mm -hmm. right? That if you're that if you're going to automate something, the people who are who are at the uh, the delivery end of that automation or that decision should be able to explain why it's happening. Yeah. Should be able to give give a consumer an explanation of why it is you can or can't can't do something. It's a pretty reasonable standard, right, to imagine companies companies adopting. You know, and for doctors, I mean, the, the the big the big challenge for physicians, for example, is going to be whether they who they operate on first, right, or who they allocate something to. And it probably makes sense to automate those decisions, but they should know why they're being why they're being made. On the on the second on the first point, I mean, I look, I mean, the the. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of a cottage industry, right? That, that comes up every 25 years to predict that all the jobs are going to be lost, <laughs> and it turns out people keep working, right? But it's still the case that mill towns, uh, and textile towns in, in North Carolina and South Carolina, which were uh, eviscerated by the United States opening up the textile market to China in the early 90s, are still experiencing higher levels of unemployment and dislocation. It takes time, right? So you can look over a 200-year span and, yeah, people find work, right? But there are people who are out of, out of work in places for mm. years at a time. And that's where politics comes in. Yeah. Right? I think I'll just show, I'll just hold this up because this is, this is a graph that shows the top 20 emerging jobs in the US and I've marked all the ones that are tech jobs. So you can see, and this is why there's so much focus on STEM mm. skills and, and technology is because that you know these these jobs and you know they're data scientists big data developers full stack developers that that's where the emerging jobs are but the the extent to which you need numbers of those people is smaller than the extent to which you needed previous workforces so the, the number of people that are being hired into those jobs is not necessarily the same numbers that you that you had previously you need less of those types of people to do um, large volumes of work. Yeah. Oh, sure. And then, and then we'll come to this. Uh, Chris Skinner, uh, I'm interested in how you define automation. You seem to make it sound like it's driverless vehicles and it's robots and that's it. In fact, in the last 10 years or so with uh, smartphones, the internet and so on, automation is a global phenomenon and people can now work remote from where the mm -hmm. place of work mm -hmm. is and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. But really my question is what about fear of uh, criminal activity or lack of privacy, confidentiality and so on? more so than just a robot replacing your job. Isn't that really a big factor in people's uh, opinions? Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's very well put. I mean, it's, and, it's, and, and it's one where you think about, think about the cases where government's behind the, behind the curve in, term, in terms of responding to things and thinking about what the, I mean, governments are just essentially unsophisticated in the way they think about the protecting the privacy of people, incredibly reactive, right? And then at once reactive and also not able to actually take advantage of the, of the, of the revolution in, in personalized data and, uh, and, and what's going on. Yeah. I, I think it's a big part of fear of, of, of technology and tech companies. Um, you know, if people knew the degree to which they were, they were uh, monetized, to use a, to use a, a verb that it probably really isn't a verb, um, by, uh, by tech companies, you know, if they understood the degree to which their data is worth something and their behaviors are worth something when monitored and are being acted on, uh, there would be a lot more outrage than there is. Mm. So I think that that's, a, that's another piece of it. Yeah. The, really, the really interesting thing about that, and, and it's different, but 
um, but just to draw a parallel, is that when the internet first kind of emerged, one of the big things that, that people were fearful about was um, about transacting online. They were very, you know, there was this great fear that there was going to, you know, that their, their financial um, records were going to be stolen and all, that people get access to their credit card um, details and things like that. And over the years, that fear declined quite significantly. And in large part, it was because um, the financial institutions put in place protections to make sure that if you did get caught up in a, in a fraud type situation, that, that you would be protected from that. And that had a, had a really big step change, in the way, step change in the way in which people feared transacting online to the point where now, you know, most people feel very comfortable about, about buying things online. And I wonder the extent to which um, governments can address some of those kind of privacy issues because it's it's a big it's a kind of a it's a it's a fear that strikes me that it's it, it's not it's not identical to the issues around credit card fraud and tr credit card credit card transactions but there are similarities there in terms of it being about data that is about you know you that needs protecting and i wonder the extent to which governments will be driven in the same way that financial institutions have had an imperative, right? They wanted people to buy more stuff from more people. Yeah. Governments, I'm not sure, have the same kind of imperatives. And, and the pace is remarkably faster. Yeah. It's a yeah. breathtaking clip now. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder there'll be, there'll be uh, there's two, two possible futures, uh, that is, or at least two, but the two I'm imagining are um, one where um, we get real much smarter about protecting our own personal data. There's greater sophistication, and indeed, there's some disintermediation happens between me and a Google or me and a Facebook, and and that protects my privacy, and I'm I'm more anonymous online, or it goes completely the other way, right? And there's just much more mass surveillance and facial recognition, and it's possible for data companies to amass even more about me in close to real time. But if it's the former then we're a very odd historical uh, generation. Mm -hmm. We will be the generation of people that for which, and historians will be very interested in us because we've left so much about ourselves. Our digital footprint is, is so large. And I, I sometimes think we're the first humans to live through, you know, or so it seems to us, maybe that's a conceit too, but, but so it seems to us that we're creating this massive record about what it is we did and do and read and consumed and and spoke to one another in email um, it, it's sort of unparalleled in at least so far in human history but if we get the privacy clamp down we could be yeah, we could be the high watermark of that. We we could be this very the first the first set of humans to have to deal with this. Yeah. Uh, and 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 but um, taking us way off topic there. How, can we get um, a, a question from 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 this young lady uh, here? Thank you. Hi, um, my name's Naomi. I'm from Meat and Livestock Australia. I was just wondering if you had any insight into in industries where we struggle to fill the jobs there still seems to be a bit of a fear of automation. Um, I was just wondering if you could explain that a little bit, if you had any insights into that. Yeah, well, I mean, what you've got, if, if you hear, well, mm. you would know more, so why don't you go first? Um, so that's a really tricky question because the, the kinds of jobs that are hard to fill are... So let me talk about a personal experience because this is this I think is is kind of interesting. When I look back at my career, what 
is really clear to me is that there are a whole lot of jobs that I have done, technical jobs, that no longer exist. So, um, and I, so I think it comes back to that rate of change. So I used to be an HTML coder. I used, you know, you don't, you don't do that anymore. Um, uh, and uh, I used to be responsible for a narrowband website, which is basically a dial-up website, right? They don't exist anymore. Um, and so I, like, when I look back at the jobs that I've done, there's actually like, there's five or six jobs that I've done in my career that, that they don't even exist anymore. And I think it's, and they're technical jobs, which kind of is interesting when you think about the fact that that's where all the emerging jobs are. And so I think it, there's this huge rate of change, even in highly technical jobs, that mean that you need to be constantly reskilling and thinking about what's the next job that I'm going to do. You, you know, mobile is a perfect example, and Simon and I have talked about this before, where, you know, even some of the massive businesses that have existed in the last five years no longer exist anymore because technology has just has wiped them out. But they were, but they were big, big businesses and they were technical businesses. So I think it kind of comes back to that, the extent to which um, people are willing to deal with the, with the change and reskill themselves and and not. Uh, and I think from an educational perspective, this is a, this is a really big challenge for universities. Because, and we talked about it a little bit before this idea of micro-credentialing because it, it strikes me that we're, gonna, that we're going to need a workforce that is always thinking about the, what's my next job going to be and what are the skills that I need for that job and how do I attain those skills to take those next steps. So I think, I think that that may be a way in which policymakers can rethink education in particular. I mean, that, you might have a perspective on that as well. The, the list of jobs that are hard to fill yep. are, are technical yeah. jobs for the well, most part. Some of them, yeah, most of them are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, and and the, the point about them, for, I saw this firsthand in, uh, in, in Silicon Valley that what happens to the 45-year-old, 50-year-old coder? Yeah. Um, they lose their job. Six months later, they got another one. Yeah. Um, because I think what happened in Silicon Valley over time was this an acceptance of this being the new normal. Mm -hmm. That the skills that I had 10 to 5 years ago were great for 10 to 5 years ago, but it's just part of being in the tech industry below a management level, meaning means that whole paradigms about what work is in that business, where you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, the idea that you're competing with people in Armenia, it, you know, um, that the businesses have followed the Sun software development models. People have got on board of that. Now, it's enormously stressful and I, you know, thankfully I'm a professor and I, I, I you know, I, 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 I do something else for a living. But, but I was very close to a lot of people some of whom, you know, 50 approaching 60 years of age, for whom if they weren't recharging every two or three years, they knew they were just going to get mown down. And, and it had just been, you know, and some of what were they being mown down? In some cases, it was automation of, of, a, of a generalized sense that was displacing, making a skill set redundant or an investment in human capital had run its course. And, and I guess that's the point, that investments in human capital aren't for the life course necessarily anymore. Some of them are, serve a very discreet purpose for, for a discreet period of time. Um, and, but what has to happen, Silicon Valley is a very unusual environment. Mm. It's got sort of enough people, enough critical mass, and enough places to go to get those skills. In some cases, the community um, is very much bottom up. But, but what, what, a, what a solution 
at scale for a society looks like you know I don't no one's really mm. I think doing a particularly great job with that just yet um, many many hands yes. one of the other things to take into consideration um, I was just in Reno Nevada a couple of months ago now Reno the, the gambling industry is dead they just don't go there anymore for gambling and here's a whole city that's dead and so the the um, I suppose the people and council are trying to say how could we bring new industry or new growth to our city. So what happens is they bring in Amazon. Amazon's going to get two blocks, mm -hmm. and the employment's going to be about six. And it's going to be one whole warehouse, etc. Same thing in Europe with the smaller cities. Now that they can go to a shopping mall with Zara, which is a multinational, all the little shops are just boarded up, and the whole culture of the city is dying people don't want to live there anymore. The shops are dead. There's nothing there. So automation is going to bigger scale, bigger multinationals. So what's going to happen to the populations in these cities that are dying? I mean, we saw that in the automotive industry when that closed up. Adelaide closed up with uh, Holden. and So what happens when cities die? How do we keep them going? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, it's, a, it's not something which I'm, uh, I'm, I'm an expert, but there, there are two observations that people make about this, right? One is that scale really does matter, right? So you're increasingly larger cities do, do, do better, right? Uh, but, the, but the second is that, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of attraction in medium-sized cities. I mean, it's hard for small towns, for sure, in a place like Reno, which is, a, which is I mean, why? I guess you go to Reno because you're you're in northern Nevada and you're not you're not close to Vegas. But but uh, uh, but for a place like that, that's really a one industry, one horse one horse town. It's pretty tough to respond, right? But if you look at Pittsburgh, which is always held up as the classic case, yeah. it's a it's a town that survived because it was smart. Steel shut down in the 80s, yeah. right? It, it impoverished the city for a little while, but it had great universities. Yeah. It's actually a physically nice place uh, to be. The weather's weather's tolerable. It's a beautiful city. Weather's uh, tough. Well, it's, 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 oh, compared it's to today. Toronto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Compared to Toronto, it's, nice, it's nicer than Toronto. Uh, if you're not in Sydney, you're camping, right? But, uh, but uh, no, it's uh, but it's uh, you know, but it's, but it's a town that survived by becoming by be, by being smart, right? And by bringing in technology companies and finding a way to rebuild its rebuild its economy around around human capital. Whether that model works now, where there's a massive dislocation because of automation, is an open question. I think Pittsburgh are very is a very special case yeah. because of Carnegie Mellon and 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 University of Pitt. Pittsburgh uh, being right there, um, and and the other thing is the, the U.S. I think has an ability on with this issue that there are so it's such a big economy. Um, there's there's a place to go and set up shop cheaply that sort of presents a bit of a cycle of of, of renewal. So you can have a Pittsburgh story. Detroit's a harder harder case, um, um, but um, but Reno, you know. Nevada is, is, is figuring out that what, one of the things it's got going for it is a ton of land, mm -hmm. uh, a ton of sunshine, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so who is setting up shop there? Data centers are going there, yeah. um, and what do data centers need? Lots of electricity, 
right? Um, logistics centers are going there because they're so close to either Northern California or Southern California markets. Mm. Um, and the other thing is, it's over the border. Right? You're not in California. Yeah. <laughs> and so the cost of doing business is, is, is a little cheaper. And that, that sort of, that's an important point. That competitive federalism that is in the American model too also creates the ability for, for states uh, to respond now, I'm not saying it's all sunshine and roses for the people of Reno with, with the collapse of, you know, gambling is essentially really centred on, on Las Vegas and, and the corporatisation, the mega casinos and all the rest of it. But, um, but, but at the level of the, of the nation, um, you know, that churn in, in the United States and, and, you know, and, and precisely almost because it is such a harsh labour market, yeah, you know the incentives on for workers, but the incentives for for people investors as well are both there, and so you tend to see layer on some competitive federalism and more autonomy to state and local governments to do things, and and you start to see I think you know the ability to be resilient in in the face of this incredible pace of of, of technological change. You know, um, um, could we? Um, the gentleman in, in the back, and, and then we'll, there's a few more hands over here as well. We'll favour this side of the room for a little minute, and then I promise we'll, we'll come here. We've got, we've got about, another, um, um, about another 10 to 15 minutes. Um, so we, if we can move expeditiously, everybody should be able to sure. get, a, get a question sure. who wants to. Uh, Winston Mock, I was a McKinsey consultant a long time ago. Um, as a politician, how would you manage two gaps? One is between perception and reality, mm. the other between electoral sentiments and the long-term uh, development or even survival of a country. So first as an example, uh, if you look at job losses in the US the last 30 years, it is as much due to automation as to outsourcing. Mm. But most nativists attributed to outsourcing. And Trump has been able to exploit that very effectively mm -hmm. to win the election. Now, going forward, in some you know, democratic countries, there may well be a lot of pushback against automation. But if the US or Australia don't automate, Korea, Japan, Germany, and China will. Yeah. So, no, we do end up. So, how, how do politicians manage or exploit those two gaps? I mean, if, if, if well, if, uh, if you can come up with a simple set of solutions for how politicians can make long-term decisions for the long for the long-term benefit, you'll, you'll you'll fix politics, right? But it's a, it's not it's not an easy thing. I, mean, I I think that the that the, the hardest the hardest problems in politics have two features. One is that uh, that they're unsolvable, but politicians can't admit that they're unsolvable. And the second is that the solutions that come to mind quickly are the wrong ones. So if you take just take take drug use really quickly. Right? It's very hard for a politician to stand up and say, actually, we're always going to have substance abuse in a society. There's just going to be some segment of people who are going to, who are going to uh, permanently damage themselves this way. And the intuitions you have about how to deal with that are wrong. Right? Punishment and criminalization doesn't work. Right? If you think about trade, I mean, this is the, the challenge with trade is that you know, there's, there's not a politician who can say, uh, well, you know, this is going to be dislocation from trade and it's going to be hard to manage. Right? And by the way, the solution is to have more trade so we get better at it. It's hard to say both of those things because you admit that you can't solve the problem and you're, you know, you're telling people that their intuitions are, their intuitions are, are wrong. Automation is, 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 a, is a prime example of that. Right? This is going to be uncontrollable at some level. 
it's going to be uncontrollable at some level, and people's solutions for how they think government should deal with it are going to be the wrong ones, right? That are going to lead to basically long-term national uh, uh, problems of, 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 of competitive and comparative advantage, where com- countries that push back against it are not going to be the leaders in the future. It's, 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 I'm so thankful for you for putting that particular insight on the table, you know, about automation versus outsourcing. You know, the, the real problem was automation, the political culprit, was, was outsourcing. Um, 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 my, my board chair, Mark Bailey, tells the story of, um, of, um, of uh, I think, I believe, Mark, it's a Republican friend uh, in the United States who um, you know, basically makes a concession that this is, this is not a problem we can solve for people of a certain status in the labour market, but it's a problem we might be able to solve for younger people, to, to equip them with this mindset and for educational institutions to step up to the market and what they're supplying for this constant replenishment of skill over the life course. And it's, it's so disruptive, right? A BA or a master's degree, and that's your investment in human capital for life, for, for a high paying, high status career. That's probably not right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we're, it's incredibly disruptive to to those of us who thought that investment in human capital would future-proof us. Um, mm-hmm. um, but but having, sir, I'm talking a lot. You get no, to talk no. a lot too. But I, I do want to make sure yeah. we get through the question. No, I was just yeah, going to yeah. say that that th- yeah. an interesting observation on that because a few years ago there was um, a narrative that was coming from the Australian government in particular, which was about there will be job destruction and there will be job creation. But, I, but that's, I'm talking about four-ish, five years ago. I don't think there would be the same um, line run now. And I think it's because the, um, those who, affect, who are potentially affected by that is a much broader group. That, it, that you know, when it was a small kind of thing that didn't impact many people, it was okay to talk about that. Now there's this, this bigger fear, this greater potential, um, it's not discussed. In well, and they're more politically marginal. And, and there's more political... For the working class to lose, yeah. right, uh, they're, they're gonna, it's, it's not going to result in changing votes. Yeah. For middle class people to start losing, yeah. <laughs> now it might start. Yeah, that's right. And now politicians will take notice. Yeah, exactly. Okay, um, let's keep going. Um, uh, yeah, could we... Janine? Yes, thank you. Um, my name's Narelle Ryan. <clears throat> I'd love to hear your comment about the whole lack of transparency of the ethical standards that underline the development of algorithms, and particularly the notion, for example, your um, one about who determines, or at least the algorithm determining the priority for medical intervention. You know, is who discriminates on the basis of age, for example, or is it a matter of life and death immediately, um, whether you're 70 or whether you're 35? I mean, I think there's a lot of um, embedded or lack of... Yes, there's a lack of transparency in those ethics, and I'd love to hear your comment on that and how we might overcome some of the discrimination that occurs both at a gender level and possibly at an age level. 
And let me say three really quick things about it. One is that there's a, there's a lot of work being done at the center at Stanford this year on AI and the ethics around AI. So it's been a, so there's very interesting conversations going on. I've been lucky to be a part of. Um, I've I've done some experiments actually in these in these data and some other ones where we we give people a scenario where an algorithm is making a decision in a hospital as to whether a surgeon should stop operating on one person to operate on five, and the experiment measures whether it's an algorithm making that decision or an administrator. And the basic story is that when an algorithm makes the wrong decision, when you know, they, they switch and, and, and the original patient dies, as opposed to when an administrator makes it, people think the algorithm made a worse decision than the human making it. Right? They trust the algorithm less in the future, mm. oh, okay. mm. even though it's the same decision. Mm. Right? The benefit of algorithmic decision making, if we can explain it and we know what's going on, is we are intentionally programming in the ethical rules that we want to follow as opposed to leaving it to a human in whatever state their mind is in that day to make a decision on behalf of, on behalf of other people. It's actually, in some respects, more desirable to have a, a cold, rational discussion about what you, what you want done before you're in a position where a person has to make a decision in the, in the, in the heat of the moment. But the real challenge with, with this is that we actually have to make those decisions now as opposed to making them in the future. For people, you know, the, 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 the kind of popularized example is for people who are designing driverless cars, they've got to decide whether a car will swerve to avoid hitting one person at the risk of hitting five, right? None of us get in our car and make that decision when every time we start the car. We don't think about it, right? We just... We just go ahead and drive our car, and at some point we might confront that awful decision, and we made it in the moment. Well, maybe we should think about it before we do it, but the point is that AI gives us a chance to actually program those things. But it's a major issue, and it's a, it's a political issue about how those decisions get made and why. And I think just one other thing to add to that, which is that the, these kind of um, algorithm, algorithms and the artificially intelligent um, machine learning that sits behind it is only as good as the data sets that they're trained on. And that's why it's so important that we have a diversity of people who are involved in both the d decision frameworks around it, but also um, in developing those data sets, because the data sets need to be representative of the diversity of us to be accurately reflecting yeah, us. And, and, and that's of, one of the big challenges. Case, yeah. 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 Um. Here. Sorry, can I have a go? Thanks very much for a very, very interesting presentation. I just wanted to draw, as if I could, to something perhaps on the edge of the study, which is the relationship between politics and policy. I mean, I have heard, I think, a number of us say the politicians don't seem to have much of an idea how to deal with these very complex matters, which is indeed why the populists are rising. And I just want to touch on the differences between the US and Australia. Just to make a rough analogy, it's extremely rough, but the workers in coal-fired power stations will have their and daughters possibly working in renewables in 20 or 50 years or whatever it might be. There's so many pol policy challenges in that shift. What I'm really wondering about is where the established political parties stand in all of this. If I understood some of your data right, but I may well have it wrong, the Australian left or the Labor supporters seem to be a bit more inclined towards seeing government as having some enhanced role, which is be exactly what one would expect, or what I would expect anyway. And I guess on the other side, though I don't think you go to this, um, perhaps market, more market-based scenarios would appeal to more conservative voters. So I'm just wondering, if the politicians are hopeless, I still would really like to know where the established political parties are. And there could be very significant differences between Democrats and non 
non-Trump Republicans. Mm -hmm. uh, Simon's mention of cooperative federalism is perhaps somewhat parallel to this because, you know, we're still in a contest of ideas between the major parties. I, I just really would like to see if they are still distinguished in their traditional way or if, and we've got a bit of talk in this room, that makes it sound like, you know, there's going to be some overarching solutions. So I'd really just leave that as a question. No, I, I mean, I think there's... I I think there's both. I mean, I mean, I think there are things which are very. If, if if you're a party of the mainstream, whether you're on the right or the left, there are there are some pretty obvious things that you want to do, which are which are things like investing in STEM or investing in STEAM and having sensible micro credentials and, and retraining programs, et cetera, et cetera. My, I guess my 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 takeaway point is that is that this the the politics of the policy is wide open in terms of which parties are going to respond and how, right? And, and parties of the left have things that they can draw on. That they can that they can uh, incredibly draw on, and which is consistent and coherent with what they believe, and they, they do to respond to this challenge, as do parties on the parties on the right and on the and on the and on the center right. So it's a it's just a very difficult policy area, and it's one where people who are shameless about not knowing actually the the facts of things and are happy to just exploit fear are going to be able to they, they have a kind of a first mover advantage because they don't have to figure out what the actual yeah, right. solutions are, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and probably this is our last question. Thank you. Sure. Thank you very much. Um, I'm uh, in analytics and studying RPA, property process automation. Um, I will take this a bit outside of the better. Um, um, just want to uh, turn this from a bit more philosophical uh, view because I think that uh, Western views are very dark ages of philosophy. Um, when we are talking about automation, I think we should look at the second line, populism, nat nativism, that's, that's the fear we, we should focus on because in industrialism is actually what, what's already been done, done this automation, so we are already in that process a long, long time ago. Uh, so we should focus what automation is going to bring is to bring more to focus on cognitive. So I'm not, I'm not for fourth industrial revolution. This is the first cognitive revolution. We are uh, coming to age where actually we can start to think more and leave the automated things for the machines. Uh, what we should fear more is privacy because that gives more power to those that want to corrupt because the nature actually gives information and if you utilize properly, then we can do better decisions. Like when you go to a doctor, you don't hide things, otherwise you'll never get proper solution. We should, we should uh, uh, fear, as we said, populism, nativism, nationalism, uh, and we should uh, focus more on trust because now we trust more machines than our actually philosophical thinking, why are we doing things, not how. Uh, so, um, and we should, we should actually focus on the power of, of collective wisdom rather than individualism. I would like some thought about that. Well, so let me, I'll just touch on one point, which is something that, that I've been thinking about and other people who think with this a lot more reflecting a lot on, but, it's, but it has to do with human decision-making and cognition. And, and the question essentially is this, is, it, is automation going to make our easy decisions for us? Mm. Right. So, is it going to do the things that are that are that, that are easy to do that we we shouldn't spend too much time thinking about, paying our bills, how to invest our money, how to get to work, right? What to eat in the morning, for example, or should should we let it automate the really big decisions, 
the big life decisions that take all sorts of reflection and, and, and things, so we can just focus on the small ones, right? Is it, is it going to do the system one or the system two stuff for us? And that's still a wide open question, mm. right? In a society where all the little things get taken care of and we're sitting around doing big thinking is a much different one than where, than where you know, the machines are taking care of the big questions for us and we just go about our days taking care of the, the hot cognition questions that we have to, we have to deal with. It's a, that was a great place to take us to at the end. What a, what a, what a, because it's, it's, there's an optimistic path there as, as, as well. A world in which we are free to think about different things than we might occupy our days now, uh, or at least the lucky ones, right? Those on the on the on the winning end of, of this historical trajectory. Uh, um, but what about those who aren't? Anyway, for another day, we could go on much longer. Thanks, everybody. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Thanks to Peter for a, a fascinating presentation that prompted a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Claire. Thank you, Thank you all.